Our second reading for this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, beginning with the 39th verse. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like the man building a house, who dug deeply and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against the house, but could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like, the, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. O Lord, take our lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hands and work through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For your love's sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure like some of you, uh, last weekend I was following very closely the discussions that were going on at the United Methodist uh, General Conference that was meeting up in St. Louis, Missouri. For those of you who were not up on this, in 1972, the United Methodist Church inserted into its Book of Discipline a line that said that uh, people who were self-avowed homosexuals uh, were contrary to Christian teaching. And therefore, ever since 1972, uh, the Methodists uh, have been very clear about not ordaining people who are LGBTQ, identifying, uh, or performing same-sex weddings. And this, in the last several decades, has been a constant source of debate. In fact, such an intense source of debate that the Methodist Church established a special group to look into this to find a compromise solution to try and make peace between the two factions. And this compromise... Uh, solution was a so-called one church plan that would have, would have allowed local churches and local conferences uh, to work together to try and work out something that made sense for the local context in which that Methodist church found itself. And last weekend during these discussions, uh, what eventually rose to the top was a so-called traditional plan, the status quo, uh, that continued uh, to enforce exclusion um, for those who are LGBTQ. And one thing that was remarkable about watching these debates and seeing some of the live feeds and seeing some of the testimonies that people gave 
were that it almost seemed as though you had two different groups uh, that were speaking different languages. The mid-20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein talks about language games, that we exist in certain language games, where we can be saying the same words, but because the meanings to each of us are so different, it's as though we're, we're like ships passing in the night. We're not engaging with one another. We're not talking with one another. And it seemed like that looking at these debates, that you could have people in the church who are so, not only disagree so deeply, but can't even communicate across this divide. And then, again, as fate would have it, <laughs> uh, on Tuesday, uh, the very same day that the United Methodist General Conference was making their vote, on Tuesday, uh, Donald Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, was before the House Oversight Committee to give a testimony. And just as happened with the UMC uh, conference, it seemed as though there were like two different conversations going on in the midst of this hearing. Uh, If you were to hear those on the Democratic side of the aisle, uh, they were intensely concerned about potential criminal activity that Michael Cohen was revealing about either the president or his his associates. Um, For the Republicans who were there, uh, they seemed entirely unconcerned at all with any potential criminal activity. Uh, other than those perpetrated by Michael Cohen, and would do their best to try and undermine Michael Cohen by any means possible. It's almost as though you had, I mean, it really was freakish to see these one after another. It's almost as though you were living in sort of some alternative universe. Uh, and again, I mean, last Sunday, a week ago, was the Oscars, and those of you, maybe you watched the Oscars, and there's that whole red carpet thing, you know, beforehand, and there are these people going out with their various fashions, and someone making strong fashion statements, and you can hear the commentators arguing back and forth, and here I was being like, gosh, that's a different language game for me, because I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> that's, that's one gene that I don't have, the fashion gene. Um, <laughs> it's always convenient to just have to wear a black robe on Sundays. <laughs> it's really... Just grab that robe off the shelf. But this, this past week really brought to the fore, in my mind anyway, one of the problems that faces us as Americans today as much as anything else. How do we communicate across some of these divides? This past week, it was pretty clear that we have a hard time communicating across these divides. How do we actually make that happen? How do we actually talk to and reach those who are different from us such that we can move forward? I mean, this has, been, this has been on my mind so much that I brought it up as the topic for the men's lunch discussion, which was great, and we got really into it, rolled up our sleeves. But I don't think we came to any real conclusion. I mean, what happens when you are talking with someone, but you don't seem like you can reason with them? It's like, you know, like, no, this is the way it is. And they're like, no, this is the way it is. And it's like, I, the reason sometimes just doesn't work. Have you had that experience? I mean, one of the things that came up at the men's lunch was how, how many people in their families just don't talk about politics anymore because there's no communication that actually happens. And when reason fails, it's like, well, okay, reason's failed. Well, maybe one proposal is we can find a shared interest. And once we find that shared interest, we can go from there. But what if there's no shared interest? I mean, at the UMC General Conference and at the you know, sort of testimony of the House Oversight Committee, there's no shared interest to work off of. I know another, another way to get around this is to try and give personal testimonies. If you speak in I language, then maybe, you know, if you disagree with someone, you speak in I language, maybe you can get somewhere. But, you know, that was happening all the time at the United Methodist General Conference and doesn't, doesn't make any bit of difference. What do we do? This is a real issue that affects all of our lives. How do we move forward? A number of years ago, uh, or not that many years ago, but several years ago, uh, Jonathan Haidt wrote a book that I enjoy quite a bit called The Righteous Mind. 
where he looked at why people, uh, particularly around religion and politics, might disagree with one another. And Haidt approached this topic uh, from the perspective of a social psychologist trying to ask what's going on here. And he begins his book uh, by saying that when, you're taught, when, when you have issues of morality that come up, the way that you respond is actually not based on rational reasoning. It's based on your emotions first, and your rational reason just goes along for the ride. So he had this analogy of an elephant, where it's like a rider on an elephant, and your subconscious sort of emotional instinct is that elephant. And as soon as something comes up, your elephant starts leaning a certain direction. And as the driver, your job is just to justify that that's the right direction. And for hate, he said, the key, or at least one of the keys for trying to have some sort of conversations is realizing that's going on and realizing that when you're talking to someone, what you've got to talk to is the elephant, not the rider, because the elephant is the one that's actually in charge. So for instance, one of my friends, uh, Jim, uh, someone whose wedding I officiated uh, here in town, uh, Jim is one of those people that uh, on Facebook just posts these just as far right-wing memes as exist uh, out there. Um, he posts on his Facebook page constantly. We're talking 20 a day. I mean, so many that most of them don't show up on my feed, but enough show up on my feed to think, like, gosh, you know, does this guy do anything else all day long other than post these memes? And I have engaged him rationally on some of the things that at least allowed for rational engagement. A lot of them don't allow for rational engagement. But those are for, I've engaged him and like gotten not very far. Because even when I have an argument that tries to, he like, I think he goes back and he Googles, you know, on, you know, whatever website, you know, what's an answer to respond to this? <laughs> because, again, what's going on? His elephant is leading him. But when I think about what Jim's elephants are, or what's Jim's elephant is, it makes, starts to make sense. I mean, Jim is someone who, he is a very successful businessman. He has a lot of money. Um, and for him, uh, he sees any talk uh, that might uh, come from taxes or anything else as, as an assault on his livelihood, on his way of life. It becomes very personal. So therefore, even if there's some rational tax policy that might be proposed, he, the, the elephant's going in the other direction. Uh, similarly, he's someone who's a lifelong Texan, and to be Texan is just and the core of his identity. And so, for Jim, nothing of value could ever come from any of the coasts. <laughs> and so, if there's anything that even reeks of one of the coasts, then clearly it's wrong, and that elephant's going in the other direction. Okay? Jim's also someone who's gay, and so as a result, he's someone who, he, the way he processes that is by being intensely libertarian in his, view, in his viewpoints. So again, as soon as you start talking about any kind of regulation of anything, what he's talking about is you're trying to regulate my sex life. Nope, elephants go in the other direction. That seems to make sense. And on the other side, uh, in the last, in the la- especially since the election last uh, November, there's been lots of talk in the news about democratic socialism, led particularly by the election of the congresswoman from New York, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I've, I've never seen a freshman congressperson, by the way, have such a high profile in a few months in my life as, as this. And there's been a lot of talk about this and engagement about socialism and all these other things. And, and yet at the same time, like, you've got to see the elephant. What elephant is she and her, and her supporters riding? Millennials today, 
are facing fewer economic opportunities than their parents' generation. So they look around, they say, this is unfair. I don't have the opportunities that my parents had. And there's a frustration there. That's a real emotional frustration. Millennials are graduating with record amounts of debt from college. That means you have hundreds of dollars a month going out of your bank account every month that prevents you from getting a different house, prevents you from saving, prevents you from buying a house, prevents you from starting a business, all because of student loan debt that wouldn't have happened, wouldn't have been there a generation or two before. And they know that. Or you look at rising healthcare costs. Some of these people, as soon as you get beyond 25 and all of a sudden you have to pay for this healthcare, expenses are out of this world and yet your healthcare isn't that good anyway. <laughs> Even the healthcare that you're paying for. And at the exact same time, you see, you see all this stuff on, the, on Instagram and other things of these people with more money than God. And so, yeah, there's an elephant and it's an angry elephant. And it's not about reason. It's about saying there must be another way because the way that we've been going is not right and my elephant is just stomping in the other direction. These elephants are real. Now, in our text for this morning, Jesus is preaching the so-called Sermon on the Plain. And as he gets through the Sermon on the Plain, which is sort of a, a number of sayings that Jesus is preaching, he talks about trees and their fruits. Again, you can look at different trees, and you can see different trees. But he says, don't let, don't let the trees distract you. Look at the fruits themselves. And he says particularly that whatever the fruit is flows from someone's heart. That look underneath and look at their heart. The line that he gives is, for it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. This is the same kind of notion. It's, it's out of that elephant. It's out of that thing in the heart. It's out of that subconscious. It's out of that stuff that's lying down there where we actually, that actually matters to move us in one direction or another. And that that's what's going on. And that's what he's telling his disciples. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, the Sermon on the Plain is directed directly to his disciples. This is not to everybody out there. It's to his disciples. And before he starts talking about figs and fruits and trees, what does he say? He's like, beware of being a hypocrite. Make sure you take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's. And so the question is, what are your elephants? What are those things that for you, if you can be as self-aware as possible, are driving you emotionally when these questions come up? Because we all have them. What are they? I've got quite a few. I can name <laughs> several come to mind when I think about it. One, I am someone who grew up in relative privilege. And I've lived a very privileged life. I've never had to worry about where food comes from. I've never had to worry about having clothes on my back or a roof over my head. I haven't had to worry about having health insurance. I've had access to the best education that you know, money can buy. I've had a very privileged existence. And I continue to have a very privileged existence. As a result of that, that's one of my elephants. Because when things come up, I tend to, I just, I can feel it instinctually. You tend to go towards that privileged way. I've been, so someone who might come from a different perspective, you know, I've got to remember, that's one of my elephants. Another elephant is being an American. And you might not, we might not often admit this, but I mean, I am, I am as American to the core. Um, and you really see this, again, whenever you travel overseas, you can really see how big your American elephant is. Because you travel overseas and you're like, oh gosh, things are done differently here, but America's better. You know, and you're like, hey, why did I just think that? Maybe that's not true. That's a strong elephant. For me, also being gay is an elephant. 
obviously. I mean, that's a very emotional thing. Like, when I came in and saw that sign taken down, like, I had to be like, breathe, breathe, breathe. (laughs) Don't get too angry here. (laughs) I tried. Tom and Richard, I hope I wasn't too angry. Um, (laughs) But it's just, there's that emotion there that it's hard to control. And then another thing is, here's another thing that, you know, again, when I'm honest with myself, another, another big elephant that I have, since I was a little kid, my sense of self-worth and self-esteem has come by accomplishing things. I was given a decent head on my shoulders and encouraged to work hard, and things have gone well. And so, therefore, my sense of self, my ego, was always built up because I was able to get that next carrot. That's, that becomes my identity. And particularly now, like, I don't have a family. And so, like, where's my identity? My identity is how many carrots I can get, that sense of accomplishment. That's an elephant. And how does it manifest itself? It's like, when I'm honest with myself, when I see people who I perceive as being lazy, whew, my elephant starts going. Because I'm like, what about your accomplishments? You know, how can't you build them up? Why are you not doing this? Why do you not care about this? You know? Uh, and I have to be aware of that. We all have these. What are they for you? Because I think that if we can actually be honest about where our elephants are, and try and sense as they're working, and if we can try and discern what they might be with others, that maybe, just maybe, we could have the potential to move forward, have discussions, live together in somewhat of a spirit of love. Again, this is Jesus' the Sermon on the Plain is Jesus' message to his disciples before they go on the journey to Jerusalem. These are his words, these are his sort of strength for the journey. Here, as you're going on this journey, take these words with you because they will help you. And can we do that in our lives so that we can move forward in love and not be overwhelmed by the hatred that can so easily rise up? And I know it's possible. I know it's possible because, again, some of the stuff I saw last weekend at this UMC, this United Methodist General Conference. As I was watching some of these things, I couldn't imagine some people going up there people who were LGBT-identifying, Q-identifying, who would go up to this conference and knowing what they're going to hear as they go up there. They knew as they walked in that room the type of messages that they would be hearing against their very being that they weren't children of God. And they still had to stand there and engage in conversation. Now, again, most, most gay people have a whole lifetime of building up armor, so I think for a lot of LGBT folks they can do that and not be overwhelmed by it, as traumatic as that can be, to step into a world where there's a lot of negativity said about you. Uh, the parts that was, that was even more moving to me personally <clears throat> were the people who went up there uh, who were parents of people who were LGBTQ. I can't imagine being a parent and walking into an environment where all of a sudden people were questioning whether your child uh, was actually equal in God's eyes. And to be there and not be overwhelmed by hate. But there were people who somehow were able to do that. Were able to sit there and have those conversations. And keep struggling. And keep trying to move things forward in a spirit of love. And if people like that can do that. Then I do believe that there's hope for the rest of us. To have these conversations. And to move forward in the right direction. Now, not everyone, of course, produces good fruit. There are some people who really do not. But I firmly believe that the vast majority of people do have good fruit. It's just a question of seeing it and having some sort of communication there. 
One of my favorite quotations of Martin Luther King Jr. is one that I think is highly relevant in situations like these. And he wrote, or he spoke, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that.